Good morning. This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Uh, good Monday morning to you, everyone. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, January 14th, 2019, and this is episode 52 of Bitcoin And... And today we're going to get into a little bit of the Russian narrative that's going around with Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to talk about EOS a little bit because uh, there's some <laughs> there's a, a really good tweet storm uh, from Panek that that kind of uh, covers the EOS constitution, which has to be hashed into every single block that EOS mines if that actually even happens. Um Ethereum is about to go into their Constantinople hard fork uh, on the, I believe, on the 16th. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, other than that, let's just go ahead and get started with the Russian narrative. Um, the, okay, the Russian narrative. What the hell is the Russian narrative? <laughs> it's not Trump. It's this is this is not. No, this this is. This is not a Trump-Russia thing. This is Russia all by itself and a particular gentleman uh, talking about Bitcoin as far as uh, the Russian state is concerned. And this, is, this started up uh, la late last week. We started hearing grumblings. Actually, not late last week. I think early, it may have been early last week. We started hearing grumblings about Russia buying Bitcoin and to, I don't know, to relieve themselves of U.S. sanctions. Um, in my opinion, I, I would not, I would not bet farms on this. I would not even bet a single livestock <laughs> on the farm on this thing happening. Okay. So everybody calm down. Don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm serious. And, and, and here's why. So, um, Here's a, uh, let's just get into the Russian narrative. Okay, this is, as of this morning at 6 a.m., uh, the Telegraph published a story with the headline, Russia plans to tackle U.S. sanctions with Bitcoin investment, says Kremlin economist. Okay, not the Kremlin themselves, some economist inside the Kremlin is is uh, making these noises. So this uh, story is by Hassan Chowdhury, uh, again, 14th of January, 2019 at 6 a.m. Russia is preparing an investment in Bitcoin to replace the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency in a bid to tackle U.S. sanctions, according to a Russian economist with close ties to the Kremlin. Okay, already we've got we've got some disparity from Kremlin economist to economist with close ties to the Kremlin. 
Vladislav Ginko, an economist at the Russian Presidential Academy of National Economy and Public Administration, a state-funded institution, said the government is taking steps to minimize the impact of U.S. sanctions that have hit the Russian ruble by replacing some of its U.S. dollar reserves with the world's most popular cryptocurrency. U.S. sanctions on Russia over the past year have come after the poisoning of former Russian military officer uh, Sergei Skripal, or Skripal, or however you pronounce that name. Mr. Ginko believes Russia's de-dollarization decision is fundamentally a move to, quote-unquote, protect its national interests. Due to a possible interruption of U.S.-nominated payment flows for Russian oil and gas, and claims investment could be as much as $10 billion U.S. dollars. Cryptocurrencies have seen a surge of interest in Russia, with President Vladimir Putin expressing interest in the digital asset in recent months. Mr. Ginko believes Bitcoin and the wider cryptocurrency industry now account for 8% of Russia's GDP. An investment to bolster the country's reserves with Bitcoin could start as soon as February. The Russian government, sorry, quote, the Russian government is about to make a step to start diversifying financial reserves into Bitcoin since Russia is forced by U.S. sanctions to dump U.S. Treasury bonds and take back U.S. dollars, Mr. Ginko said. These sanctions and the will to adopt modern financial technologies lead Russia to the way of investing its reserves into Bitcoin. The Central Bank of Russia is yet to publish official plans, but said in a statement to the Daily Telegraph that it publishes information on the foreign assets management with a six-month lag. The country has shown signs of de-dollarization by boosting its holding of the euro, Chinese renminbi, and Japanese yen. Matty Greenspan, senior market analysis at trading platform eToro, understands that there is, quote, definitely an interest from the Russian government to do this. Bitcoin saw a drastic sell-off in 2018 that saw its market capitalization slip from around $230 billion in January to $66.6 billion by the end of December. The alleged Russian plans to invest in the digital asset would see the state purchase almost a sixth of the world's Bitcoin. <laughs> Good luck. Though Mr. Greenspan believes the buy order could push the price and valuation up, reducing Russia's share following a potential investment. The Russian government would be unable to open an account with an exchange to buy cryptocurrencies, so investment plans could evolve the setup, involve the setup of an intermediary cryptocurrency that can be exchanged for Bitcoin. Oh, man, this just gets worse and worse. The new cryptocurrency would have to be offered by a broker such as uh, Sberbank, S-B-E-R-B-A-N-K, a state-owned bank, and would act as what's known as a utility token. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm gagging on this. Quote, The proposal that I understand is on the desk of the finance minister at the moment is to create some sort of intermediary cryptocurrency, Mr. Greenspan said. In 2017, Mr. Putin met with Vitalik Buterin, the 24-year-old Russian founder of cryptocurrency Ethereum, to discuss possibilities in the sector and has met personally with the Ethereum head in recent months. 
We know that Vladimir Putin is a big advocate of blockchain technology, Mr. Green, said Mr. Greenspan. Obviously, he doesn't like the sanctions that have been placed on him, and ha- he's already said that these types of sanctions are going to lead to de-dollarization. This is more or less the direction the Russian government is going. Okay, so that's the end of the article. Uh, this is, you know, it's a narrative, people. It doesn't mean that it's not true, but it doesn't mean that it is true. And if you're if you're planning on this happening, I I highly recommend that you take a wait and see attitude. I really do. Um I this just I don't know, man. This just sounds like a bunch of noise to me. It, it, it there there has been no there hasn't been any official statement there hasn't been any buy pressure on Bitcoin. And one of the things about this deal is common sense. We we really, really need to look at at what is common sense. Um, Who in their right mind, individual, institution, or at the level of a federal government, like the likes like, you know, China or Russia or the United States, nobody in their right mind would telegraph what they're about to do as when money's concerned, nobody telegraphs what they're about to do before they do it as far as an investment is concerned, right? Because if if you telegraph that you're going to buy a shitload of Bitcoin and people bite, then people buy Bitcoin ahead so that the price, so that their investment will surge. So that means that the Russian government, by telegraphing, if they really are telegraphing, and I don't buy it, I think this is just noise. I really do. But let's say that it's not noise. Let's say that this is definitely going to happen. Well, chances are real good that by the time that they get around to actually buying it, because from the story, it does not sound like they're prepared. By the time they actually get around to buying it, they're going to be buying a whole lot less because a lot of other people that do have access to the markets will start buying it. And that's if they believe it. And the fact that we're looking at a price of Bitcoin at 3,550 bucks tells me that we're not really buying the Russian narrative because if we were buying the Russian narrative, that price would be surging and buy pressure would be extreme and the volume of buy would be very much increased from the levels that, that we've seen over the last week, two weeks. Um, And there's a, there's a a couple of people in that, that have said it very correctly in on uh, crypto Twitter one is count Satoshi underscore count, or I'm sorry, at count underscore Satoshi. And he says, also, how dumb would Russia have to be to announce they are going to stockpile an asset before they actually do it? This has to either be a hoax or some media play by Putin. Uh, I disagree with the second part. I don't even think it's a media play by Putin. I, I'm, I'm sure he, like if anything, he's probably out there going, oh, I don't know. You guys go out there and cause confusion in the in uh, in the mass media. Um, 
the second one that I've got is from Sound Money Central. Not in a million years would info like this leak before they actually started doing it. Would love to be wrong, though. And that's sort of my sentiment. I, you know, I'd love to be wrong about all this, but I think this is all just a bunch of BS. I, 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 don't, I don't know who's causing it. I don't know where these quote-unquote leaks are coming from, if they're leaks at all. But the safe bet here, people, is to not, I, I, is to not buy into this. This story is probably just a bunch of garbage and it will never materialize. And one of the hallmarks uh, that tells me that is <clears throat> the fact that they are admitting that they are not going to be allowed to be on exchanges and are going to need to have built or are going to need to build a utility token cryptocurrency, much like, I guess, the Petro before they can exchange that into Bitcoin. I, the, everything about this just smells stupid. Not bad. It just smells stupid. So, um, you know, not investment advice, people, but, you know, do what you want. But, man, I would I would take this thing with a grain of salt. Uh, we'll watch it, of course, because it would be really interesting if they did. Um, but I'm not I'm not putting this is as anything I'm not, I'm not taking this as credible at all. So let's, let's move on to the EOS constitution. Now, for those of you guys that don't know what EOS is, it's in my opinion is a scam. Um, it is, uh, built by scammers, serial scammers, and they have scammed in the past, and there's no reason to think that they won't scam in the future. And I do believe that EOS is a massive scam. Um, that said, uh, again, it's kind of like, you know, some it's a token on a blockchain. If, if even that can be believed, I, I don't know about this, the, this whole thing. But uh, it's one of the major cryptocurrencies, so it's, it's something that can't be ignored. Um, so we really got to look at, at what's going on. Uh, uh, Panek at P-A-N-E-K-K-K-K -K -K -K, uh, has a, a, a fairly uh, moderately long tweet storm about this um, that kind of gives some eye-opening, uh, kind of gives some eye-opening looks at what's going on with EOS. So let's go ahead and get into this one. Uh, Number one, most don't know this, but every transaction in EOS must include a hash of the EOS constitution. This binds users to the constitution and failure to include it may be grounds for invalidating a transaction. Right there, people, before we even get into the second tweet, invalidating a transaction on a blockchain makes it not a blockchain because it's centralized because other people can decide to censor a transaction, whether or not you've hashed the constitution into the transaction or not. It is centralized. Okay. Just be aware Two. The first draft was written by, wait for it, Block One's VP of Product. Okay, so he's talking about who wrote the Constitution. Oh, man, this 
just gets worse and worse and worse. Number three, and this start, uh, number three starts some of the clauses of the EO's constitution that one must abide by, otherwise one's transaction may be invalidated, which means it's censorable. Okay, so one, no lying. (laughs) This sounds like a six-year-old wrote this. No lying. No user of this blockchain shall make knowingly false or misleading statements nor statements that constitute discrimination or harassment, nor profit thereby. If you, <clears throat> if you lie about your age anywhere, ever, you will be in violation. All right, so that's not part of the Constitution. That's Pan X uh, explanation. And he's, he does that quite a few times. So uh, number four is the fourth clause of the Constitution. Voter independence. No member shall offer nor accept anything of value in exchange for a vote of any type, including for block producer candidates, amendments, or worker proposals, nor shall any member unduly influence the vote of another. Right. Five, the fifth clause of the Constitution. No owner or fiduciary. This EOS blockchain has no owner manager or fiduciary it is governed exclusively under the terms of this constitution he who creates the constitution therefore governs it six the sixth clause 100 percent ownership cap no member nor any beneficial interest shall own more than 10 percent of issued tokens laugh out loud Agreement to penalties. Oh, I'm sorry, seven. This is the seventh clause. Agreement to penalties. Each member agrees that penalties for violations may include but are not limited to fines, (laughs) account freezing, and reversal of transactions. Who is the judge and jury? Okay, eight. This is the seventh, or I'm sorry, the 17th clause. Choice of law. Choice of law for dispute shall be in order of precedence, this constitution, the maxims of equity, and the laws of Malta. What in the actual living explicative? Nine, why is B1 drafting the constitution for all EOS chains? Who decides who drafts the constitution? How are changes made? How is the final draft agreed upon? How is it enforced? Were any lawyers involved? Is this a joke? It's got to be a joke, right? (laughs) Right? 10. Note that 10% cutoff level is set right at the amount of tokens publicly owned by Block 1. Coincidence? (laughs) This is not governance. 11. This underscores the challenges of governing a protocol not designed to be permissionless. Constitution, monitoring, adjudication, penalization, arbitration. All require large-scale coordination of mental and financial resources. 12. Whereas permissionless protocols pass no judgment and let existing societal laws handle the above, EOS has decided to recreate large pillars of society. With no direct financial incentive for these services, I suspect such a model will quickly develop scope creep. Uh, there's another one with a couple of links and his last one. Number 14 is EOS official documentation states that the software enables a constitution. 
doesn't say it requires one. If any EOS folks want to clarify, is this version intended for the main chain? If so, why is B1 involved? And yeah, see, this is one of the reasons why I think this this whole thing is a, is is a scam. Now, let's say for um, you know, just for argument's sake, let's say that it's not an intentional scam. Let's say that the that everybody involved in this thing, uh, this thing called EOS, is has their heart in the right place, and they're they they really believe in the mission and all that. Okay, let, let, let's just go ahead and pretend that that's what's going on. The way that they've set this thing up with the Constitution is, is so game theory playable, it's not even funny. It, it, I mean, the, the whole 10% cap, and it just so happens that the 10% cap equals exactly what Block 1 already owns as far as EOS is concerned. I mean, right there... Right, right there. You should, it should raise up all the hackles on the back of your neck because that one right there lets me think that, okay, we've got our 10%. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and make sure nobody owns more than us. And we'll cap it at at 10%, knowing that the chances of somebody equaling their voting power, which is one of the ways EOS works is it's, that's what the the whole voting uh, clause came in that I can't buy or solicit, uh, you know, as, as a, a, as a uh, node operator, I can't solicit anybody else that are node operators to vote my way. Um, This just every, everything about this is fraught with difficulty. And the fact that you have to hash the constitution into every transaction is just bogus. Because A, the Constitution itself is just rife with problematic issues. And second, hashing that in, into every single block just, I don't know, seems to me a, a little bit more a hand wavy than anything else. Anyway, um, again, not investment advice, but I'm, I have and will continue to stay as far away from EOS as I possibly can because everything about that stinks to high heaven. All right, so let's get into uh, let's get into the Ethereum Constantinople thing. Um, Bob McElrath has a tr- has a, a tweet here. Ethereum might be about to discover that miners are opposed to decreases in their profits. And he's retweeting Hudson Jameson. Uh, who is saying, I, who tweets out, I'm trying to get in contact with Ethereum miners before the hard fork. Could anyone put me in touch with people at the following pools, Nanopool, F2 pool, Mining Pool Hub, Dwarf Pool, and he goes on and on and on. Um, he's trying to get um, get some reaction from the miners be, uh, because the Constantinople fork that is going to go into place, I believe, on the uh, January the 16th um, at at if we're only going to talk about one thing that it does is it reduces the block reward from two Ethereum per block or from three Ethereum per block to two. Um, and then uh, Eric Voorhees, ha- who is a uh, been in the space for a while, but he's a, a rabid Ethereum fan is <laughs> he's, I don't know. He's one of the people that that has uh, in the past voted several times against Bitcoin in, in very, you know, very obvious ways. 
um, has shown himself not to be a good player in the space. Anyway, so he tweets out this uh, media article, uh, the Constantinople upgrade, what you need to know. And this was released by Consensus, which is a large, which is a group of people and developers that uh, center themselves around Ethereum. Um, so they're sort of like uh, pretty much the largest player in the Ethereum space. So let's get into this one. On January 16th, the Constantinople upgrade of Ethereum is expected to happen. Here's what's happening and what it means. Constantinople is the name of Ethereum's next hard fork system upgrade. It is part of the the multi-step journey towards Serenity, which implements revolutionary protocols such as proof of stake. On December 6, 2018, the Ethereum core developers voted to proceed with Constantinople, which will be implemented at block 7,080,000. With an average block time of 14.5 seconds, that puts the estimated date of the Constantinople hard fork at January 16, 2019. But doesn't a hard fork mean a currency split? Not necessarily. One of the most highly publicized hard forks in Ethereum's history was the hard fork that occurred after the DAO, D-A-O, hack and restored the stolen ETH to the original owners. Because that hard fork was unplanned and contentious, the community split between those who supported the restoration of funds and those who rejected it on grounds of immutability. And I'm going to stop right there. Uh, When that DAO hack occurred, uh, a bunch of Ethereum was stolen. So what happened is that everybody, in the, uh, or not everybody, but the powers that be in Ethereum decided to roll back the Ethereum chain to restore all of the funds. Now, the second that that happened, it became very clear that the Ethereum blockchain is not decentralized. It's very, very centralized because a few people made the decision to roll the chain back. Now, what happened is that there was a bunch of people who decided that that was bogus, that if you're going to have an immutable blockchain, it damn well better be immutable. And if you screwed up so bad that you had a smart contract written that was that easily hacked, as in the case of the DAO, then you deserve to have happen what happened and you don't get a chance to roll it back. So this is my main argument against Ethereum and it has nothing to do with proof of stake. It has nothing to do with everything. The fact that a few people were able to change the entire structure of the future of Ethereum made me just say, this is not what I want to be part of. Because if you can do that, you can do a whole bunch of other stuff too. Namely, censor transactions. Okay, so continuing on. Uncontentious hard forks, however, have happened in Ethereum's history to implement upgrades without currency splits, including Homestead and Byzantium. Because the Ethereum community at large expects and supports the Constantinople hard fork, the token consequences as seen in the Ethereum ETC hard fork are not expected, or the Ethereum and Ethereum classic hard fork, and that's what fell out of the DAO. Constantinople will integrate five Ethereum improvement proposals, which tackle a number of cost, speed, functionality, and minor issues. Bitwise shifting instructions. EIP-145 will add bitwise shifting instructions to the Ethereum virtual machine. 
The instructions allow for bits of binary information to move to the left and to the right. This improvement means the execution of shifts in smart contracts will be 10 times cheaper. EIP 1052 Smart Contract Verification allows for smart contracts to verify one another by pulling just the hash of the other smart contract. Before Constantinople, smart contracts would have to pull the entire code from another in order to verify, which took time and energy to perform. Well, God forbid that you actually verify the whole damn thing. EIP 1014 Create 2 was developed by Vitalik Buterin. The upgrade improves, improves the enablement of state channels. In Ethereum, at scaling solution based off based on off-chain transactions. EIP-1283, the full name of which is Net Gas Meter, Metering for S-Store Without Dirty Maps. That's a hell of a mouthful of a name. Reduces the gas cost for the S-Store operation. This reduction enables multiple updates to occur within a transaction more cheaply. EIP-1234, Block Rewards and Difficulty Bomb Delay, is one of the most highly discussed Constantinople upgrades. It is comprised of two components, Block Reward Reduction and Difficulty Bomb Delay. Block Reward Reduction uh, is... Well, hold on. Block Reward Reduction. Currently, when a miner succeeds at mining a block on the Ethereum network, they receive three Ether as a reward. After the Constantinople hard fork, miners miners will receive two Ether per block as a reward. This reduction from three to two is known as the thirdening. For God's sakes. This is the second time in Ethereum's history when block rewards have been reduced. The Byzantium hard fork in late 2017 reduced the rewards from five to three. The reduction in ETH reward over the years is in the effort to reduce the inflation of Ether in basic supply and demand economics. Ethereum is also not the only network to implement this strategy. Bitcoin halves its block rewards every 210,000 blocks towards its eventual cap of 21 million Bitcoin. Though the total supply of Ether does not have an established limit, let that ring out in your ears, people. Reducing the inflation rate is an essential tool to ensure scarcity. For a more in-depth look at the thirdening and its consequences, read here, and that goes to a link. The difficulty bomb is a mechanism that, if activated, would increase the energy required to mine a new block until it becomes impossible and no new blocks can be mined. At this point, the Ethereum network would become frozen. EIP-1234 delays the implementation of the difficulty bomb for another 12 months, at which point it will be voted upon again. The difficulty bomb was originally included in the network in September 2015. Its purpose is to support the eventual transition away from proof-of-work towards proof-of-stake. When POS is implemented... Miners could theoretically choose to support the old POW chain, thus causing a split in the community and the creation of two separate chains, one maintained by stakers and one maintained by miners. The solution for this not to happen is to implement the difficulty bomb, which would eventually phase out the efficacy of mining and allow for the complete transition of the network over to POS without the threat of a contentious hard fork. Conclusion 
The Constantinople hard fork will be an exciting evolution for the Ethereum community with the implementation of efficiency, speed, and lower costs. We are moving closer to the full realization of Ethereum's potential. And that was from Everett Muzzy from Consensus. All right. No, <clears throat> none of that. It's, it's not that none of that is correct. It's that none of the way that it's laid out here is uh, going to probably be the case. And let me uh, let me go back up to something that I, uh, uh, let's see here. Okay, the, the, the difficulty bomb and this, this uh, reduction. Okay, let's start with the reduction of Ether as a block reward from three Ether to two Ether. Um, it's, I, I love this particular statement. Ethereum is also not the only network to implement this strategy. Bitcoin has its block rewards every 210,000 blocks. Okay, right there. Bitcoin halves its block rewards as part of a schedule that has never been changed was was if if was arbitrary was only arbitrary on the day of its conception and upon the day of its release nothing in the bitcoin blockchain has ever been arbitrary since then the rules are basically baked in stone and 210,000 blocks before a halvening has never changed when you look at it the way that ethereum is doing it it's whenever it is that they decide to do that. This is another huge piece of evidence that the Ethereum blockchain is completely centralized. And if you are part of it, you have no say. Unlike the Bitcoin blockchain, which if you run a full node, then you would have been able to take part of several different types of changes that were going to be suggested by a few people and say no, that that's not going to happen. Most notably is the USA or the UASF fork, the user activated soft fork, which stopped SegWit2x dead in its tracks after we got SegWit in. And then everybody said, no, we're only going to have a one megabyte block and enough, well, not everybody, but enough people that the rest of the whole crew went along with it, but it wasn't somebody from a foundation that said that we were going to do UASF. It wasn't somebody from the developer core that said that we were going to do UASF. It was people that are part of the consensus mechanism that makes up Bitcoin that said, we're not going to do X with Ethereum. You don't get to do that. Now, what I suspect is going to happen is that they are indeed going to implement this. And I do believe that the miners um, are going to, if if it goes to proof of stake and a, a difficulty bomb is there, somebody's just going to go into the code. They're going to remove that. They're going to fix it, fix up any problems that occurs with it. And they're going to continue to mine the Ethereum chain as they knew it. Um, Because that's just the way that the game theory is going to work out. Nobody's going to want 
I mean, miners right now that have a whole bunch of money invested in mining Ethereum, that's a lot of hardware. That is not only a lot of hardware, it's a lot of electricity contracts. It's a lot of buildings. It's a lot of cooling hardware. It's a lot of stuff that actually goes into mining other than the actual mining machines themselves. So when we talk about infrastructure, we're not just talking about a bunch of miners that you can just shut off and, and sell the GPU cards to gamers. You're talking about uh, how, to, how to either get out of your lease of the building that you're in, how to get out of your contracts, that uh, your electricity contracts that you've sworn that you were going to uphold to the electric company and not get sued for breach. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on in here that is literally going to drive the current Ethereum miners to continue mining Ethereum that the way in the way that they've been mining Ethereum. I, I think a split's going to happen. I think it's going to be a contentious hard fork. I think it's going to end up spawning yet one more Ethereum, just like the Dow spawned Ethereum Classic. You're going to get another Ethereum out of this. Will Vitalik Buterin be able to hold on to the ETH ticker? You betcha. But there will be another Ethereum that comes out of this thing. Mark my words. And if I'm wrong, you can laugh, point and laugh at me and make fun of me all day long. I don't care. I don't think that that's going to actually end up happening. I do think that a contentious hard fork is going to happen. And there you are. So that's going to do it for that. Um, I want to make a couple of... Um, I'm going to end this one here with talking a little bit about Aaron Schwartz. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, in... 2013, or in, in rather in, um, I think it was like 2011, yeah, uh, a man by the name of Aaron Schwartz was arrested by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Police on state uh, breaking and entering charges. All right, <clears throat> let's get into this a little bit, and, and let's, let's talk about, I, I want to illustrate why it is that I even am bringing this up. Um because it's not directly attributable to, to Bitcoin. And that's what we, one of the things that we talk about here, but uh, January the 11th passed um, a few days ago. And that was the anniversary of Aaron Swartz's death. Um, he, he quote unquote committed suicide in 2013 on January 11th um, in his, in his Brooklyn apartment. Um, okay. So who is this dude? All right, Aaron Schwartz. Well, let me just <clears throat> let me just read the Wiki, uh, the Wikipedia entry uh, to get a, a, a at least a decent handle on who this guy actually was. He was an American pro computer programmer, entrepreneur, writer, polit political organizer, and internet hacktivist. He was involved in the development of the web feed format RSS and the Markdown publishing format the organization Creative Commons, and the website framework web.py, and was a co-founder of the social news site Reddit. He was given the title of co-founder by Y Combinator owner Paul Graham after the formation of Not A Bug, Inc., a merger of Swartz's program, project Infogami and a company run by Alexis O'Harian and Steve Huffman. Swartz's work <clears throat> also focused on civic awareness and activism. 
He helped launch the Progressive Change Campaign Committee in 2009 to learn more about effective online activism. In 2010, he became a research fellow at Harvard University's Safra Research Lab on Instructional Corruption, directed by Lawrence Lessig. He founded the online group Demand Progress, known for its campaign against the Stop Online Privacy Act. In 2011, Schwartz was arrested by Massachusetts Institute of Technology Police on state breaking and entering charges after connecting a computer to the MIT network in an unmarked and unlocked closet and setting it to download academic journals, or I'm sorry, to download academic journal articles systematically from JSTOR using a guest user account issued to him by MIT. Federal prosecutors later charged him with two counts of wire fraud and 11 violations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, carrying a cumulative maximum penalty of $1 million in fines, 35 years in prison, asset forfeiture, restitution, and supervised release. Swartz declined to plead. Swartz declined a plea bargain under which he would have served six months in federal prison. Two days after the prosecution rejected a counteroffer by Schwartz, he was found dead in his Brooklyn apartment where he had hanged himself. In 2013, Swartz was inducted posthumously into the Internet Hall of Fame. All right. Okay. The guy's accolades are extreme. That... I mean, just co-founder of Reddit all by itself. I mean, that's one of the biggest websites in in the history of the internet. Um, you know, I mean, he was a fellow at Harvard University, and he gets busted for doing what? Downloading academic journal articles from JSTOR. Now, before everybody gets into their, you know, starts jumping up and down and saying, well, that's theft, uh, no, actually it's not, it's not theft. And here's why JSTOR, um, is a, <clears throat> is a service that stores data. And one of the things that they store mainly is academic journal articles. That means stuff like, uh, the journal cell or the journal, uh, you know, ours biotechnica or, you know, th- things like that. And the thing about academic journals is this. Almost all, if not all, articles published as in academic journals are funded by public monies. All right? Um, so now it, let's make the assumption before I continue the argument, let's make the assumption that he downloaded nothing but articles that were written and funded by the United States or that were written by people funded by the United States government. If those were the only articles that he were taking, uh, those belong to the public. Our current academic system is, has been corrupted to be a, uh, basically a a bank account for um, publishers of academic articles. Uh, I'm talking specifically about Elsevier and a couple of other people. There's, there's actually only very few publishers of academic journals. 
Uh, there's a lot of academic journals, but the publishers are very, very centralized. There's only like two or three of them as far as the, as far as the mainstream stuff. Bob's Backyard Biochemistry Journal is probably not published by Elsevier, but all the ones that people actually give a crap about are. Because all those studies were funded with public money, you, I mean, they, they should be ours, but they're not. In fact, if you want a journal to sell, that thing costs 1500 bucks a year. And I think it's actually more. It may be more like seven. I think it's more like seven hundred dollars a quarter because you you can buy you can buy a, a journal subscription to these things by the quarter. That is the only way you're ever going to read anything that was written, or any 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 science that was performed, anything that was discovered, that was done with public money. The only way that you get a chance to view those is if you buy the journal. All right, and that this was one of Aaron's main pet peeves, is that if it was funded with public money, then it's owned by the public. No questions, there's no argument, and they killed him for it. Now, they say that he committed suicide, but all pointers look like he was not a depre- in a depressive state, that he was looking forward to his future, that he was looking forward to fighting this thing, he didn't accept a plea bargain because his argument was, this is wrong. If, I, if my tax dollars were taken from me to publish or to work on and publish scientific articles, then I own those articles. All of us do. And he was downloading them so that he could be able to distribute them so that people would be able to read them without having to pay Elsevier an arm and a leg to do so. All right. So um, January 11th was the anniversary when Aaron Schwartz died and he was 26 years old. He was a 26 year old young man, had his entire life before him. He downloaded academic journal articles from MIT. They arrested him. And two days after he refused a plea deal, he was found hanged in his apartment. Okay, maybe I'm wearing the tinfoil hat, but there is nothing about this that even remotely sounds kosher. And I don't want anybody to forget about this guy because he's done he's done a lot for the internet. I mean, come on, man. I mean, RSS is one of is a feature of the internet that everybody uses whether they know they're using it or not he co-founded reddit for god's sakes markdown publishing format is freaking everywhere and yet we hardly ever really talk about this guy so aaron schwartz um to your parents um i'm sorry because to to lose your child at all is devastating to lose your child who had so much promise, I can't. I just can't. I really can't. Um, so if you get a chance today, look up Aaron Schwartz, A-A-R-O-N-S-W-A-R-T-Z. Look into his life and see if you agree that it was completely natural for this young man to kill himself in an apartment after refusing a plea deal 
for downloading academic journals or journal articles that were paid for by public monies. If you think that that's right, then I suggest that you go buy EOS and a whole bunch of it. You're going to get filthy rich, man. Other than that, I'm going to see all of you guys on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.